From the pup tent on Brokeback Mountain, it's the IGN DigiGuys. And now, two men who wish they knew how to quit each other, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Right, Mark, we are uh, we're still on the lavaliers, but we're back indoors. We the, are. Uh, we, we had some interesting reaction to the uh, the outdoor thing. All negative. Uh, well, <laughs> Chevelle Dixon thought, d- didn't think it worked out so well, um, but Al in San Francisco thinks it's great. He thinks we should be. Uh, <laughs> I'll read. I'll read his email later. <laughs> well, you know, you know who didn't who didn't think it worked out also? Huh. Mark Kaiser. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> that's too bad. May us never do record the show outside again. Oh. We, we will, though. We will. At some point, we'll record it. We'll, it'll be like in a mall, or it'll be... I'll oh, read, great, I'll, in a mall. I'll read you Al's uh, email from San Please Francisco. Please do. Now, by the way, speaking of Al's email, yeah. this has nothing to do with Al's email. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. First yes, of all... Do. What are you... Hey, here. Yes. What, what are you... Boy, that's, that air conditioning is kind of loud. Is it, it? The, the microphones are picking it up, I think. Uh, we'll turn it off. Folks, I'm letting you know that as yeah. we record this outside, it is 94 degrees. Outside. Inside, nice and cool because nice of my air cool. conditioning. But... Yeah. Outside, 94 degrees, Wade Major, not caring, wants me to turn the air conditioner off. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, let's see if it improves the audio quality. Can I'm willing to suffer. Up? I'm willing to suffer. Well, but, but is the listener willing to suffer? Uh, yeah, I think, I think they'll be willing to suffer with us. <laughs> okay. Let su- us know what you think of the air conditioning at godsatdigigods.com. Yeah. Although we've done the show with air conditioning before. I know, but they're, they're, they're more sensitive mics. Oh, that's right. We're using lavaliers now. Yes. Interesting. Yes. I'll turn it off. Yeah. The other, by the way, one problem with the lavalier is I yes. can't take it off. So I'm tethered. Hopefully, the lavalier will stretch as long as the air conditioner controls. Yeah, I think you will. By the there way, we go. have two things to talk about today as I turn off my air conditioning. Um, we need to talk about a, a notable death, notable sad, tragic uh, death in the entertainment industry just a couple yes. of days ago. And we also need to, of course, weigh in on well, Ben Affleck. We, we need yes. to talk about what we're going to be doing in July of next year. I know, what I'm, I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm, I'm going to be there at the mass suicide that will take place if Ben Affleck's allowed to play Batman. <laughs> now That will be awesome. Before Wade and I even knew that Ben Affleck was cast as Batman in, the, uh, in Zack Snyder's uh, Superman Batman movie, uh, we hated it already. And, and you know what? We, we, we didn't hate who, it for who, a snarky who, who, reason. Who watched Dar- Daredevil and said, uh, boy, that guy, that, he, is, he is a look, model superhero. Look, here's the thing. Let's, I mean, step it up. Okay, here's the thing. If Ben Affleck, not an interesting actor, right? Never liked him. Like good, di- much good more. director. He's become a good director. That's the thing. That's part of it. Yeah. Why is he? Here's the thing. Uh, if he's good enough for Terrence Malick, yeah. Terrence Malick can probably get something out of Ben Affleck, having been the star of To the Wonder. Yeah, sure. That's different. Yeah. Now Ben Affleck already not a very good actor or a very interesting actor. Whatever. Yeah. It's fine. But in the hands of Zack Snyder, Zack Snyder's no. going to get nothing out of him. No, nothing. So already an actor who gives you nothing, will, you'll get nothing once you put him in the hands of Zack Snyder. Precisely. Put him in the hands of Terrence Malick, you might get something out of him, that's fine. Sure. So already you're thinking to yourself, all right, this is a, a, a completely average actor, a nothing director, already the performance will just be a bunch of brooding and three-day beard and whatever. Yeah. The other issue is that uh, Ben Affleck just directed the Oscar-winning Best Picture of last year, which was produced by uh, his good friend George Clooney, who uh, swears he'll never make a mistake like playing Batman again, and g- apparently did not share that wisdom with his buddy Ben. Now, you have to assume that Ben Affleck contacted George Clooney and said, hey, I got this offer. What do you think? And I, I can't imagine Clooney said anything other than Clooney allegedly ha- Clooney allegedly has a poster of, of himself as Batman in his office to remind himself to never do something like that again. Well, that well, that, I mean, that, it's pretty well documented that when Clooney did that film, big failure, yeah. franchise destroyed, that was the moment when he looked at himself and looked at his agents and looked at his manager and said, yeah. "I will not do crap anymore. I have enough money. Yeah, forget the money. I'd rather do good things." And of course, he's done good things ever since. He's won an Oscar. Blah blah blah. Yeah. So the thing is that um, I, I feel like this only tarnishes his nascent, very promising. Extremely promising, surprisingly promising, admittedly mm-hmm. promising yeah. directing career. I would agree. That's what I see. I so would. really, my disdain for this casting is not yeah. based on some like you know, oh, it's the Gili guy, whatever. Who cares? Yeah. It's really because he's not—he's only an average actor. He's being put in the hands of a very average, below-average director, mm. and he's 
developing into just a terrific, terrific director. So why not just take that track? Why do I something know. like this? I don't know. I mean, I guess he, he already he already has plenty of money. It's a mystery. I mean, he's got to be making tens of millions of dollars for this. Tell us about that cinematographer, dude. Wait, why won't you let me be angry about Ben Affleck? Uh, it's just it's depressing. I I I mean, look, I I would. You know, I, 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 uh, here's my ideal casting. Are you ready for this? Uh, Christian Bale. Uh, if you're going to do Superman and Batman, okay, who would your ideal Superman and your ideal Batman be? Christopher Reeve. And no, uh, no, 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 no. So you're saying this because you have the ultimate answer. Well, kind of, sort of. <laughs> I don't really have the ultimate answer. I just, I just have, you know, ideas. Oh, go. There are pairings that I that I that I find compelling. Don't let me stop you. Um, well, no, never mind. So, never mind. <laughs> okay, that's it. No, well, I mean, you know, I I find I find it fascinating. If you were if you were to do like, uh, you know, like Patrick Warburton as Superman. Well, that's just satirical. No, that, exactly. I like that. I like that, you know, because he was the voice of Superman in that Jerry Seinfeld uh, commercial, right? All right, let's move on. Okay, never mind. Yeah, that's terrible. All right, moving on. Uh, moving on to a very notable uh, uh, yeah. uh, death in the last couple of days. Yes. Um, I'm going to recommend about five or six films, all shot by the same guy, and you'll be like, oh my God, he shot all those films? Mm-hmm. This guy's amazing. Yep. We are talking about Gilbert Taylor. Now, Gilbert Taylor is the cinematographer of... I'll, now, I'll do this in, uh, in chronological order. Yep. By height. Chronological order. Yeah. Hard Day's Night. Shot that, 1964. Dr. Schla- uh, Dr. Strange Love. Try that again. Uh, two Polanski films, Repulsion and Cul-de-Sac. Uh, a little film called The Omen, Richard Donner. Mm-hmm. And that little film, maybe you heard of it, called Star Wars. Yep. And uh, he's pretty much best known for Star Wars. But, you know, he also shot uh, Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So the guy who shot Star Wars and Doctor Strange Love passed away at age ninety-nine. Ninety-nine. You do realize that there's something about being a British cinematographer. This is like the if you look at the great British DPs of you know the 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 fifties and sixties primarily, like Freddie Young and on and on and on and on, with the exception of um, uh, Jeffrey Unsworth. They all live to be like 95, 98, 99, 100, 102. It's crazy. <laughs> it's like something about being a British DP. You just live forever. Uh, well, it's not too late way to change careers. I know. Uh, what's interesting about um, Gilbert Taylor when you read about his involvement with George Lucas and Star Wars is that Gilbert... He hated the experience. He hated the experience. <laughs> what's funny is that Gilbert said, Lucas worried about the actors. <laughs> I worried about the look. Right, and yeah. he and Lucas didn't get along. So it was like, you, it was like uh, Gilbert, you worry about the uh, the look. George, he'll worry about the actors. Cut to thirty <laughs> years later, all George Lucas cares about is the look, and then nobody cares about the actors. Yeah. So really, it's uh, it's come full circle. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Gilbert Taylor uh, did at the age of ninety nine a couple of days ago. So it's mm-hmm. some great recommendations just based on his uh, his movies: Doctor Strangelove, Hard Day's Night, Repulsion, Cul de Sac, The Omen. Yeah. And The Omen Two. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, Star Wars, Flash Gordon, and uh, there you go. Mm. Also, uh, he also shot Dracula, the oh, 1979 right. Dracula, directed by John Badham. The uh, the 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 one with uh, with Frank Langella. Frank Langella and who, hair that that great hairstyle. Frank Langella, who by the way, just I uh, just Netflixed uh, Robot and Frank. Yeah. Now Robot and Frank is a uh, film from last year. It was a big hit in Sundance. Uh, Frank Langella. Yep. Much older now and terrific. Still a great actor. He was uh, great then. People he, don't give him enough credit back then. I agree. Yeah. He plays an elderly cat burglar. It's in the near future. Yeah. It's not a futuristic tale. It's not a science fiction tale. No. It just takes place in the near future. It's science fiction-ish in it, ways. Innocent. Yeah. And he plays an elderly cat burglar living outside of New York City in a nice little cottage home. And he's pretty much been discarded by his family. And uh, his son, played by James Marsden, uh, gives him a 24-hour live-in yes. caregiver who will yeah. cook for him and clean the house and whatnot. The caregiver is a robot. And the movie's called Robot and Frank, and that is the movie. And it's and a big hit at Sundance. Uh, I didn't quite understand it, but... I mean, the I caregiver is Frank, by the way, and, and Franklin Langella plays Robot. Uh, yeah, Steve Robot. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't quite... Un- I mean, it was cute. I didn't understand all the love for it. It, it, yeah, it, 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 it felt like the, the, least, uh, the least interesting uh, version of that material. Yeah. They could have done a lot better. 
don't well, know how, you know, how do they get off on Robot and Frank? I have no I idea. Have no anyway, idea. we've got uh, we got a, a bunch of that. We got music today. We got, we have a giveaway. And what? We, uh, yes, and we also have um, a brief interview with the extraordinary uh, directing duo of um, Scott McGeehy and uh, David Siegel, who of course did What Maisie Knew and have done great films like Suture and The Deep End. And uh, I had a chance to chat with them a little bit about What Maisie Knew, which we covered last week. Um, and uh, they are a cool couple of guys. Yeah, well, here's the I thing. really I, root for them. I never get invited to the interviews. Why is that? Go. Because you have a day job. Oh. You use that as an excuse. Yeah, that's why. Okay. We're still trying to hook up John Badham, you know. We are. You know what? John Badham has been offered to us as an, as an interview. interview yeah. Like, uh, let's talk to the guy. Yeah. And uh, as you know, I have a day job, so I'm willing to cede an interview with the director of Saturday Night Fever <laughs> and War Games to you. Thank you. Why won't you set that up, Wade? We're working on it because he's shooting stuff. He's, he, his schedule is tough to, to wrap and uh, to, to deal with. So we'll, we'll get it. We'll sort it out. All right. Now we um, will sort it out. Now wait. I'm, I'm, I'm under the impression that we have a giveaway. Yes, we do. We have a giveaway. In fact, let's just get that, get this giveaway going right now. Uh, we have five copies of the uh, Palm Door winning Amour, Michael Haneke's Oscar. Nominated, uh, extraordinary Oscar nominated, Oscar winning. You know, I mean, but they've got the the thing on. You know, five Oscar nominations. They got including Best Picture. It's a. It was a. You know, the nominations in this case are more significant than the win. Uh, but yes, it won foreign language film, but it was nominated for Best Picture and and four other categories. And you know, it won the Cannes Film Festival. It's just great. We've got five copies of Amour that we have been graciously given from uh, Sony, and we are going to give them out. So just go ahead and send us an email. And this, way, this, is the, yes. this is the part of giveaways I love. When you have not worked out in your head what the listener has to do to win the... the, the, the you are literally going to just pull this out of your butt right now. Well, no, they, they, we're just going to randomly pick. Okay. Randomly oh, pick. Okay. It's a random, random pick. Okay. So uh, we will give five very lucky people a copy of the DVD of Amour, which I have in my hands, by the way, right here. They are in my the hands. Guy, we will autograph it for you. I will, uh, I, will, will I, will, I will wipe them with your sweat. I don't know what that means, and uh, I don't want to know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we need the emails sent to us at gods at digigods.com. Just put Amour, A-M-O-U-R, in the uh, subject line, and include your name and address, please. And uh, as long as the email is uh, date-stamped by Friday, August 30th, we will be able to put you in the running, and uh, we will alert you by email if you are one of the fortunate lucky winners it's going to be good times. It's going to be good times. So that is Amour in the subject line, name and address in the, uh, the body of the email, gods at digigods.com. Good times. It's a good giveaway. It's an yeah. Oscar-winning best foreign film. It is. Palm Door winner. It's, it's a, and it's a fantastic film. That's a great film. Oh, it's a great film. Uh, so, Mark, we're going to start off talking about some music. Um, uh, I'm going to let you carry the load of it, but I do want to make mention of uh, a particularly cool CD set, which also includes a DVD. Uh, a night in Paris, Christopher Cross, because you know I'm a big fan. You know, you know when I hear a night in Paris, that's not the movie I think about. <laughs> no, this is a, this is a double CD and DVD uh, combination set. Uh, Christopher Cross, Night in Paris, and uh, it is it's pretty great. Uh, Christopher Cross has never been my particularly favorite live performer. But um, the songs are just awesome, and uh, this is a great collection of stuff. Uh, and of course, he's you know he's touring right now, and will be through the end of the year. And uh, this 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 is all kind of in in, in tandem with promoting his uh, his tour. But there's a lot of great stuff. Arthur's theme, obviously, uh, sailing, never be the same. A lot of the stuff that we all remember. But you know uh, some of the lesser known stuff. Um, Say you'll be mine. Uh, I really don't know anymore. Walking in Avalon, minstrel gigolo. A lot of great stuff. So uh, it's good times. Really good times. Christopher Cross, still, still kicking it, still moving it. He was the Grammy sensation in the 80s. I, I think Christopher... Came out of nowhere. Christopher Cross and Toto should do like a... Like oh, a he should tour together and be the all super white boy lame bands would, of the 80s. Uh, oh, that would be the best. I would love that. Especially... I, you know, I know, miss the rains down in Africa. Uh, you know what? Air Supply. Throw Air Supply oh, in Air there. Supply is good Oh, my gosh. That would be great. Ugh. I love the hairstyle in those guys. Now, that's a mass suicide. Yeah. Yeah, Ben Affleck. All right, uh, here's the thing, Wade. We'll get to some music right now, then we'll get on to uh, new releases now. Yes. I have to say, before we do music, I have to make an admission, Wade, right here right, on the show. What's the admission? The admission is that when I was a kid, I had the worst taste in music ever. Uh, Led Zeppelin, didn't get it. Led Zeppelin, the, uh, Pink Floyd, these super cool bands, yeah. like all the music lovers love. You loved, didn't get it. Didn't get it. No. 
the band whose members I could name, mm -hmm. even before I could name the members of the Beatles, right. was Journey. In fact, I remember that I would sit in front of my television watching MTV, back when they used to play videos, mm -hmm. back in the 1930s, and I would literally sit in front of the TV watching MTV, waiting for Journey's uh, Separate Way video to come on. No kidding. Yes, Separate Ways. I would wait there for hours in front of my TV, legs crossed, latchkey kid, mother comes home, what are you doing, son? Waiting for Journey Separate Ways. You were a latchkey kid. Uh, yes, I was. Mm. I, I was basically an idiot. So now what we have is a documentary called Don't Stop Believing, Every Man's Journey. And what? Uh, and this is a fun, little, uh, a fun little documentary. Here's the thing with this. As I'm sure you guys probably know, uh, the lead singer of uh, Journey, Steve Perry, long since gone. So the guitarist, Neil Sean, he needs to find a new lead singer. Mm -hmm. Go on tour without a lead singer. What does he do? Goes on YouTube. Starts looking at YouTube videos. Serious? Of, uh, is that, is, that's how it happened? They find this guy in the Philippines, this guy Arnel Pineda who was singing in a Journey cover band or whatever, singing Journey songs, and the guy was spot on, just like Steve Perry. Neil Sean emails this kid and says, are you Ar Arnell Pineda? Because is Neil Sean. And Arnell Pineda is, I mean, I'm obviously paraphrasing heavily, but Arnell Pineda is like, what, are you kidding me? Who are you? Is this a practical joke? Is this uh, my friend Steve? And it turns out that that's how they found him. Why on not, YouTube. Why not just make up with Steve Perry and just just be done with it? You know, I could see Perry was one of those guys. He was just another one of those um, front men who just wanted a, a solo career. And he got a solo career. It had one hit song, which wasn't even a very good song. Uh, oh, Sherry. Yeah. Blame. But this is all about uh, finding uh, Pineda and going on tour and the resurrection of the band. Wow. So I think it's cool. The guy sounds just like Steve Perry. He's definitely... Yeah, look, it's one thing to find a guy who sounds like Steve Perry. Yeah. It's another thing to put him on stage in front of 15,000 people and say, sing these songs and captivate this audience. And this guy does it. Wow. He really does. Wow. So you'll hear all the big songs, you know, Don't Stop Believing in Separate Ways and blah, blah, blah. So it's good stuff. I thought um, Don't Stop Believing Every Man's Journey was just terrific. Of course, I have horrible taste in music. Yeah. Uh, Scorpions. This is on Blu-ray, by the way. Scorpions, Moment of Glory. Uh, this is uh, a live concert. I'm not a big fan of the Scorpions. Uh, I do love their one or two, you know, hit songs. Winds of Change. Rocky like still a hurricane. Loving you. Yeah. Well, here it's called Hurricane 2000. They've yeah. updated it. Oh, well, they've yeah. Done it, they, what's interesting is that they did it in front of a, um, acoustic in front of a, uh, in front of the, like the Berlin Orchestra. Yeah. So I, I always like it when heavy metal bands do their songs acoustic. Because then you get a sense of whether the song is well written or not. It was just a bunch of chunky power chords played at 500 decibels. The songwriting won't hold up, but if you do those songs acoustic in front of a uh, with, with an orchestra, you realize if the songwriting is good or not. And with Scorpions, uh, it's still okay. They're still not my favorite band. Anyway, Scorpions, Moment of Glory. There's that. Also, uh, live at Mantra. I, uh, you know what? I swear, you could probably build the pyramids again <laughs> with all the Mantra DVDs. With yeah. all the live at Mantra DVDs. Here yeah. we have, and this is a Blu-ray of Santana and McLaughlin. This is from uh, 2011. This is Carlos Santana and John McLaughlin. Um, now, what they're doing is they're playing tracks from their... Um, they had an album in the early 70s called Love, Devotion, Surrender. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a bunch of songs from that here, as long as some other classics. Black Satin and Love Supreme and, uh, you know, uh, Shake It Up and Go. So, I've seen Carlos Santana in concert. I saw him at Red Rocks in Denver. He's very good. Uh, McLaugh uh, McLaughlin, not as familiar with, but he's still a very cool guitarist. So, Santana and McLaughlin. Way the Bee Gees. Oh, yeah. When I say the words B and G, what do you say? I'm Bee Gees. Barry Gibb. <laughs> Brothers Gibb. They are the best. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Barry's it now. I know. That's really sad. It is really sad. Uh, anyway, this is uh, live performances of all their big hits. You know, Grease and Jive Talking and More Than a Woman. And they're awesome. They had like 10 awesome songs, but those 10 awesome songs were freaking awesome. They, no, it's, it's, it's uncanny how enduring and legendary those songs are. I mean, they define an era. There, there's, there are very, very few acts that define an era. They're one of them. No, that's true. The Beatles are another. I'm not sure how many others there are, you know? I mean, U2, are, U2 is kind of evergreen. Well, Rolling are Stones are sort of, sort of transcendent. Well, there are bands that represent a musical movement. Like Nirvana represents a musical movement. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to an era, yeah. then definitely the Bee Gees. I've got a couple more. Um, this one, which is off at of Spindle, which oh, the hell out of me, uh, is just terrific. Cream, Farewell Concert, Decent Sound, considering it's an old concert. We're talking 1968. 
Now Cream was a great band with Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, and Jack Bruce. And I just love Cream, Sunshine of Your Love, and White Room, they play that here. Uh, this was their final concert in Royal Albert Hall in London. Um, don't make me tell my Royal Albert Hall story, because I will. Every time I hear uh, the Sunshine of Your Love, or whatever it's called, the only thing I can think of is Randall Tex Cobb doing that horrible, horrible dance in uh, 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 the, the, Gene Hack the, no, the Gene Hackman thing. On Common yeah. Valor? Yeah. He on Common Valor with the very early James Horner he did that, he did that, dumb, that comes on the radio and he starts doing the little dance and then Randall Tex Cobb, he's dancing and then next thing you know, Reb Brown goes and dances with him and I'm thinking I'm watching Randall Tex Cobb and Reb Brown dance to Cream. This is really bad. And uh, somehow the movie wound up being somewhat okay, but my goodness, that was an embarrassing moment in movie history. Uh, wait, my recommendation... Uh, you know, Red Brown played right? Yor, the hunter from the future. You know that, right? Um, Just making sure you know that. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Wade, my recommendation, mm. big-time recommendation, is uh, something from uh, Draft House Films. We love Draft House. We love Alamo Draft House. We love the films that Draft House comes out with on Blu-ray. We have a documentary called Band Called Death. Now, Band Called Death, they were a very kind of loud band. It, um, it was a bunch of teenagers, African-American teenagers, and they formed in the early 70s. This is kind of a little bit before disco and definitely before punk. So they're sort of a pre-punk kind of a band. Um, and they never really made it as big as they probably hoped. But the movie about their music and about their life is just beautiful. It's not what you think it's going to be. You think it's going to be just you know loud and obnoxious and the band's called Death and how good could they be. But um, it's all about punk history, and it's all—it's a little bit like um, waiting for um, "Don't Say Godot," waiting for mm -hmm. Sugar Man, where it celebrates this music. There, these guys are from Detroit, and you know, a, a wrong turn here, a wrong turn there, and this band, it turns out, never really went anywhere. But it's just beautiful. It's all about like love and family, and their great music, and it's just—it's a very high-spirited documentary, and I just think it's a really cool movie. A band called Death is from uh, Draft House, and I think you guys should, uh, you guys should rent it. It's cool. All right, we're going to get into some uh, new movies now. I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to do a quick rundown on some straight-to-video stuff, and then uh, Mark can launch us into the, uh, the outstanding, remarkable world of uh, movies that have actually been in theaters. Uh, you know, there's a really strange thing that's This gone... has been in theaters? Yeah, that was in theaters. Really? Didn't you know that? I did not know that. Sure was. It was out for 10 seconds. I nearly had to review it on the radio, and then we changed days. Anyway, um... This has not been in theaters. That was in theaters. Really? Yeah. It was like some horrible limited review. Some limited release? <laughs> well, it's, uh, they're all horrible limited releases these days. Nothing gets distributed for more than about 48 hours. Uh, but, you know, there's an interesting thing that goes on with, with uh, uh, Robert Johnson. Uh, you know, Robert Johnson, the, the billionaire, the BET billionaire, right? He went and he bought Image, and then he bought uh, Acorn, and he, he was buying up this like media empire, and nobody really quite understood how it was all going to fit together. And I'm not sure I still do, but what's interesting is that a lot of the stuff that he releases is very clearly BET audience stuff. And one of those is From This Day Forward, which I, I don't know if this is an answer to, to Tyler Perry's uh, success, where he kind of found and mined this, this audience that nobody really knew existed, a much more family-friendly audience, or if it's the Ice Cube movies, remember Ice Cube became a family-friendly guy for about 18 seconds, um, or if it's uh, an, entirely all of those old Morris Chestnut romantic comedies from the 90s, remember those? Sure. There were like 17 of them. And, and, they, were, and, I liked none of them. and they all had titles like, uh, <clears throat> oh no she didn't, and uh, what you got for love, and uh, you know. Just <laughs> what the, you got for love. Just all these, these, all these crazy titles that just were, you know, meant to evoke just uh, some kind of wholesome, uh, you know, uh, urban romance. Anyway, and they all had Morris Chestnut standing there looking guilty and some, you know, black woman staring him down. Every single one of them. Anyway, he's not in those anymore for some reason. But uh, uh, this is much more along the lines of uh, uh, the... Uh, it's called From This Day Forward, which is a lot like Waiting to Exhale is the only analogy I can make. And it's like a, a friendlier, gentler version of Waiting to Exhale on, on some level. Anyway, uh, you know, a couple of women who uh, just uh, have all kinds of uh, issues with their men. And this was originally aired on the Gospel Music Channel. I must confess I had no idea the Gospel Music Channel even existed or that it was airing original movies. Is it okay? It's fine, I guess. There are 18,000 other movies just like this. It's not that mind-boggling, and it probably doesn't warrant as much time as I've given it. 
Stephen Moyer in Evidence is, uh, you know, this is one of those films. This is also from Image. And um, uh, this is higher production value. This is what, this represents kind of the mid-level range now that we're getting with straight-to-video stuff where... Uh, they're they're putting some money into the production value, and the script is pretty decent thriller stuff. Um, the uh, you know it's all about uh, you've had these, this brutal murder at a gas station, and they have to piece it together with all of the, the you know the found footage from cell phones and uh, surveillance cameras and all this kind of stuff, and uh, it becomes a cat and mouse thing, and uh, nothing particularly earth shattering here but it's well done and has a wonderful performance from Rada Mitchell who I still don't know why she isn't a bigger star um, she was in that Woody Allen movie she was great what was it uh, Megan and Megan Julie and Julia she, she was one of the British schmutzy, movies schmutzy and schmutzy yeah I mean she's great I love Rada Mitchell anyway uh, schmutzy and schmutzy you liked that did you I, you know, I, I remember the sequel schmutzy and schmutzy 2 anyway, Electric Boogaloo Rada she's you know Stephen Moyer is kind of the name here but Rada Mitchell is just terrific and uh, you know probably could have been uh, a higher profile film but anyway that's on a, uh, that's on Blu-ray and looks quite nice uh, an American ghost story from director Derek Cole this is from Breaking Glass um, you know what uh, this is one of the better uh, genre films straight to video that I've seen recently has uh, an interesting I mean it's, it's a decent ghost story and it's uh, kind of all done from the point of view of a writer so it's got that you know uh, the, the, the story within the novel thing going on but uh, not bad uh, great director commentary from Derek Cole and uh, a couple of the actors and it's uh, you know I'd say if you're a genre fan, worth, worth, worth checking out if you like ghost movies. ARC does, you know, it, this is really interesting. ARC Entertainment is pioneering this, um, this, you know, well, they're getting stuff from Mar Vista Entertainment, but it all gets released through ARC, and they're pioneering this uh, low-budget disaster thing that is a little bit like what our, uh, our buddies over at the Asylum are doing, except these aren't mockbusters, they're just disaster films. And there's, there's like two or three of them a month, here I've got Seattle Superstorm and Super Eruption. Now, they all have the, pretty much the same kind of artwork, which is just something being completely destroyed. It all looks like uh, some kind of a, a scene from, uh, you know... Some Roland Emmerich film. Some Roland Emmerich film, yeah. They all look like knockoff Roland Emmerich movies, which is kind of fool, funny. Isai Morales, who uh, just lost the, his attempt to become the president of the Screen Actors Guild, stars in Seattle Superstorm. And uh, Super Eruption really doesn't have anybody of note in it uh, that you should worry about. But that being said, I, I think as schlocky as these are, they really do know their audience. And they kind of have them down to a science. And uh, yeah, all hell breaks loose. Um, the, uh, the, the funniest one with the uh, Super Eruption is that it's, it's, it all takes place at Yellowstone National Park. At, uh, the idea that somewhere underneath Yellowstone, it's, it, it's not just geysers anymore. It's, it's a giant yogi bear who comes bl- exploding out of the earth to uh, walk like Godzilla. Oh, a documentary? It is, in fact, yes. No, it's, it's, just, it's just about a giant volcano that pops up through Yellowstone like a big zit. It's pretty funny. And, you know, Seattle Superstorm is just all about, you know, being able to put that artwork on the cover, which shows the Space Needle cracking in half. Awesome. And I'll show the, I'm sure this will sell really big in Seattle. Anyway, that's a, that's a, a nice little uh, subgenre that uh, ARC is mining. And uh, let me plow through a couple of these. Ritual um, is uh, it's a it's a you know not a great thriller, um, but it, it's this is from the uh, Screen Media Dark Side line. Um, it's a little too long. It is really gory, really brutal. Uh, probably should be about half the length that it is. But again, I guess for you know genre fans, people who like that kind of uh, that particular horror subgenre, I guess you're okay. Uh, let's see, Red Line, uh, also kind of in the same uh, vein, tries to be a uh, white-knuckle thriller about people who are uh, trapped on a subway train when a terrorist attack happens, and it's, uh, it then becomes speed, basically. And it's not nearly as good as the, uh, the subway, uh, what was the Korean film? That, that great Korean film was like Speed on a Subway Train, I can't remember. Oh, it's just fantastic. Anyway, um... Yeah, anyway, it, it's, it, it, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's, it should be better, but if you've got some time to kill, you know, why not? Uh, Absence is um, a, a very, very good Blu-ray transfer of uh, a so-so film. And um, 
this is one of those psychological thrillers that uh, never quite makes as much sense as it wants to. Um, the uh, the idea here is it centers around a um, how do I put this? The it, it's it's about a a woman whose pregnancy just literally stops, and um, the the explanation for this and how all of this stuff kind of uh, ties together never actually makes any sense. But uh, they maintain a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of tension until it all just gets completely ridiculous and falls apart. Uh, Blue collar hooligan, really just uh, completely indulgent. Uh, you know, blue collar riot movie. Uh, no point really in seeing this. This is just, uh, this is like something from, this is from Screen Media as well. This is pretty much from the WWE crowd, except it's not from WWE Entertainment. And then uh, lastly, there is Rock Jocks, which um, is one of the silliest movies I think I've ever seen in my entire life. This is about the Asteroid Management Initiative. And um, this is just one of those silly, uh, very, very insignificant independent films that uh, kind of hopes that they'll get a little bit of uh, traction just by the name of the movie and the uh, the sub you know gamers geeks heroes Joes like this don't just fall out of the sky thank goodness nobody in this movie can act it's uh, it's really quite an embarrassment and with that mark tell us about some of the movies that have recently graced our screens in theaters well before that wait i'll tell you what's coming out uh, via criterion in november oh thank goodness Come on, we got, uh, here's what we have. We have yes. uh, Francis Ha. Which people love. I have not seen Francis Ha yet, but uh, I know a lot of people love it. People love it. I'm Alonzo huge... went nuts for it. He, he, he just thinks it's the, like one of the best films of the year. I'm a big fan of Noah Baumbach, so I, I, does, it deserve Fran- does it deserve Criterion treatment? Because that's obviously top shelf. I can't yeah. uh, really speak to that. But uh, it is coming out in November. Um, Tokyo Story, you know, the Ozu film coming out. Uh, it's a 4K digital restoration. So now when you take a 4K digital restoration of an Ozu film, it probably takes up about like 17 Blu-rays. Nice. You know, Ozu films are all very long and uh, nothing much happens in terms of like, you know, shot composition definitely. In nice. terms of camera movement, in terms of just like blocking, shots last forever. Right. It's an Ozu film. Yeah. So if you like Ozu, you know what you're getting. Um, saving the big one for last, Wade. Uh, we also have uh, Zatoichi. I, I never get oh. that name right. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Zatoichi. Yep. The Blind Swordsman. Uh, there's been like 75,000 of these movies that started in 62, went up until 73. There are actually... All of them are coming out on Blu-ray. There are actually 25 of them. Uh, that does not include the 1989 uh, Zatoichi, which is not one of the original Katsu films or the, uh, the uh, Takeshi Kitano um, uh, Miramax film from a few years ago. Uh, those are not canon. Those are just you know part of the Zatoichi lore, but they're not part of the Katsu films. The, the, the Katsu films are the actual original films. There's a couple of TV series incarnations too. Those 25 films, a really fascinating story behind them. And uh, originally... 14 of them, no, sorry, 17 of them had been released by Home Vision, which at the time before it was, uh, it was sold was a, a sister company to Criterion. And then seven of them were uh, being released through uh, Animago, who had inherited them through a different deal because some of the films were actually in, the, in Katsu's estate. And then Dei went out of business and Toho inherited the seven. And, you know, so there, the, there were these divided rights. And the question is, what happened to number 14? We will hopefully answer that when we get the set because number 14 has never been released on DVD. It's the only one of the 25 never before released. It is now part of this set. I didn't expect that whole thing. Wait, will you just be quiet already? Jesus Christ, what don't you know? I know. Uh, the other big one for November, folks, save your money, save your shekels. Got to make this happen. City Lights. Oh. Uh, Charlie Chaplin on Blu ray from 1931. Probably his greatest film. Mm hmm. If, if you do not get that. You do not love movies. Nope. That's all I have to say. Uh, Wade, uh, let's talk about the two films that you uh, so beautifully set me up to discuss. <laughs> Pawn Shop Chronicles is uh, the latest sub-Tarantino BS from the horrible director Wayne Kramer. Oh, Wayne Kramer. He's the worst. <laughs> God, that guy's the worst. He just makes crappy films. You know what? Here's the thing, though. He, you can tell he makes crappy films. This is all he can get made. Some, like, sub-Tarantino three... Three stories that are interconnected by one thread, kind of a vignette yeah. thing, Pulp Fiction-y, blah, blah. It's the worst. 
It's a little, that, that's that's kind of passe now, isn't it? Got a good cast. Brendan Fraser, uh, Elijah Wood, Vincent, Vincent Zanofrio plays the pawn shop owner uh, who was sort of the thread between these three stories. And it's just a big country-fried redneck movie about crap. It's just so bad. Mm. Anyway, uh, but again, it's, it's a good cast. So, But I would forget Pawn Shop Chronicles. A little bit better is um, At Any Price. Now, At Any Price was directed by uh, Ramin Barani, whose last film I was very fond of called Goodbye Solo. Oh, really? That's the same director? Yes, it is. Oh. Now, unfortunately, Goodbye Solo, good film. At Any Price, not a good film. I'm, here's the thing. I, I kind of gave up on this film, actually, after a while, because I just didn't like it. But um, I'm going to read to you the back of the uh, okay. Blu-ray box. And you tell me how either A, cliched, or B, silly this all sounds. In the competitive world of modern agriculture... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, Ray, you're out it the is door. Cut, it is cutthroat. You're, 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 you're half out the door. It's right? cutthroat. In the competitive world of modern agriculture, ambitious Henry Whipple, played by... Dennis Quaid. By the way, nobody as handsome and ageless as Dennis Quaid should play a guy named Whipple. No. Whipple is a name that is reserved for nerds and dorky teachers. Ugh. Can't be doing that. It's already two strikes. Competitive agriculture and Whipple. He wants his rebellious son, Dean, to help ex- uh, expand his family's farming empire. However, Dean has his sights set on becoming a professional race car driver. Oh, gee. Three strikes, you're out. You have competitive world of modern agriculture. Makes no sense. Yeah. Whipple, only for nerds and teachers. And the kid wants to be a race car driver. Cliched. Bad. Put it all together. I dumped mm. that on this film. Has Zac Efron, Heather Graham. Heather Graham, by the way. Ageless. She's 40, she's 40 now. It's, she's older than 40, dude. She's older than 40. I'm going to check right now. Check. I guarantee you she's well, older than what, 40. What's your guess? I'll uh, say 43. Uh, 40, yeah, somewhere in there. I'm going to say 43. Uh, stand by. She is 43. Fine. Thank you. Uh, is she like? Is she? Does she have? Is she married? Is she lesbian? Does she have kids? What's her? Deal? She's just. She's just out there being a uh, roller girl. That's what she's doing. Uh, you know, Mark, Standing Up is the latest film from DJ Caruso, and uh, DJ Caruso. I, I have such mixed feelings about his career. Um, you, you know, the Salt and Sea, promising. Not terribly good. Two for the money. Terrible. Eagle Eye. Unfreaking watchable. Um, just dreadful movie. Uh, standing up. Not bad. This is an exclusive at Walmart right now, so you're not going to find this anywhere other than Walmart. You know how the Graham dated Adam Ant? Yes, I did know that. Did you really know that? Yeah, I did know that. What? That's it's, just the most bizarre pairing. It's, it is Heather what Graham it is. Mar- uh, married. Heather Graham yes. dated Adam Ant. Yes, Heather Graham was also Annie on Twin Peaks. And she's trapped in the Black Lodge to this day, and nobody really knows how to get her out. I mean, uh, you know, the last I remember was the, the Dale's doppelganger had a, had a cut on his forehead, and he was, like, laughing maniacally and staring into the, into the mirror saying, Where's Annie? Where's right. Annie? And meanwhile, she's trapped in the, in the Black Lodge. And that was, you know, what, like 16 years ago, 17 years ago? I'm a little tired of that. I, could we free her from the Black Lodge, please? Thank you. That's my, that's my Twin Peaks rant for the day. Heather Graham mm-hmm. dated Adam Ant. So, standing up, Walmart exclusive comes in a Blu-ray, DVD, and Voodoo digital copy combo set. Mind you, that is not uh, ultraviolet, even though Voodoo does enable ultraviolet. There are also Voodoo exclusive digital copies, as if that weren't confusing enough. And uh, DJ Caruso really here has just done kind of a family-friendly, sweet, and charming, totally uh, uncharacteristic version of uh, Moonrise Kingdom. So it's not as awesome as Moonrise Kingdom. It doesn't have the, the cool you know, twist to it as Moonrise Kingdom does. But it's fine. It's perfectly acceptable. Uh, the kids are good. And, you know, it's a couple of kids at summer camp that, you know, run away and go on an adventure. And it's, it's endearing and well done. And, uh, you know, it's not cloying or condescending in the ways that a lot of these films often are. Uh, Chandler Canterbury and Annalise Basso are both great. And you know who else is in this film? Um, Heather Graham. Rada Mitchell. Again, she's great. She's terrific. Uh, who is not so great in this film is the, uh, the actor that I actually saw live on stage playing Moses, and that would be Val Kilmer. Um, I, he needs a haircut, and he needs to lose some weight, and he needs to get a real role again. Just saying. That's what I'm saying. There we go. He's got to stop it. The painting is... Uh, this is a special edition Blu-ray DVD combo set. 
of one of the more uh, really fascinating kind of animated films that I have seen in a very, very long time. It, it's, um, it's really, it's, this is just so unusual, and you're not going to see an animated film like this probably ever, ever again. It, the whole thing is kind of a, this, uh, this, um, this fantasy fable um, that takes place inside a painting. So the, the painting itself is the canvas, as it were, for this story. And um, it, it's, it kind of winds up being, a, it uses the, the context of the painting as, the, uh, as kind of a fable about the real world. So everything is very allegorical and uh, about the, you know, the different classes and castes that we have in society. Um, Really interesting, some interesting extras on here about how the artwork was done and the, the, the concept art and, and so forth. Um, the story itself, probably not as effective just because it's a little bit overwhelmed by the artwork, but boy, the artwork is really, really interesting. And uh, I do recommend it just for that alone. So definitely check this out. That is called The Painting. And that, I believe, was in theaters for about 18 seconds. All these movies, they just don't have any shelf life anymore. Uh, an animated film that is on the other end of the spectrum that never for, should have been made is Epic. Uh, this is from the uh, Blue Sky Studios, who uh, do the Ice Age films for 20th Century Fox. And uh, this uh, does come with an ultraviolet digital copy, and boy, this is just pointless. Um, there's, there's kind of a class of animated films that are emerging now from the studios where they are effectively telling anime stories but they are draining all of the, uh, the, the... There's nothing interesting about the artwork, nothing particularly interesting about the... It's uh, so generic. I mean, it's, it's called all epic. Gen- it's, I know, it's so generic. It's just really dreadful. Not that. Well, Some interesting, vo- interesting Why voice... Why don't you just call it movie? Yeah, it's, it, look, it, look it's, it, it, essentially this is... Um, it, it's the Lord of the Rings transposed into a much more uninteresting backdrop. And I, it, this is no one went to see this because nobody really knew what it was about. And you, you watch it and you just feel like you've seen this 150,000 times. And uh, the, the animation is also um, in a weird kind of in-between place. It's like they, don't, they want it to still look animated, but they want it to be a little bit photorealistic, but not so photorealistic that it detracts from the fact that it's an animated film. So they find that they mine this weird kind of netherworld, this like purgatory where the that makes the animation so unbelievably uninteresting and devoid of actually any uh, any style that you that what's the point so uh boy that's a big waste of time that's a blu-ray dvd digital hd ultraviolet combo jackpack rock on uh, a bunch of extras that uh, aren't really worthwhile that's yes, how wait. that's how cranky i am today uh, you're always cranky i'm always cranky because i didn't bake anything today by the way, the reason why I didn't bake anything today why? is because Wade, here's the thing. Yeah. Went to the doctor. Yeah. Actually, that's not true. I had a feeling. Yes. I had a sense. Yes. I went to this party. Mm-hmm. I think I told you guys about this party. I saw mm-hmm. Diane Lane mm-hmm. at this party. Martha Kent. Yes. Saw her at the party. Yeah. Uh, ate a lot at the party. Yep. I realized I think I'm getting fat. Uh-oh. I weighed myself. I gained 11 pounds. Oh, no. That's a lot. 11 pounds. That's I a something. fair amount. That's yeah. Like, you know, three pounds. Yeah. But I said, you know what? Shutting it down. Gotta shut it down. Okay. Get back to my regular weight. So here's the thing. How are you gonna do that, Mark? How are you gonna get know. back to your regular I weight? Don't know. Now normally what I would do is I would do a food diary way. You do the food diary, everything you put in your mouth, besides like tea and water, your you put in the diary. I did that for a while, a couple times, kinda worked. Then you realize you wind up eating seven cookies and going, I'm not gonna put that in the diary. Because if I don't put it in the diary, it didn't happen. So the food diary didn't work. Then came up with another plan. This plan from diary to diarrhea. No, no, no. Okay. I swallowed a tapeworm like those Japanese girls. Okay, I did not. Yeah. Here's the thing: every morning, I weigh myself, right? Because if you weigh yourself, can't fool the scale. Ah, well. There you go. So we know what that, you know what that is. Weight. You know, you know what we call that hmm. consequences. If you eat a bunch of crap during the day, the consequences step on the scale. You're mad at yourself. Eat good. Consequence step on the scale. You're happy. You lost weight. So now I write down my weight every day in the bathroom. Got a pad, pen. I really do. Nice. Just saying. Put it out there. So you have nothing to eat today. <laughs> yes, wait. Over 30 petitions sprung up on change.org overnight to cast another actor as Batman. Wait, can I turn the air conditioner on? It's so hot. Yeah, go ahead. Turn it on. Why not? Okay. 
fans mm. rained a torrent of criticism down upon the internet just minutes after Warner Brothers announced to cast Ben Affleck as the next Batman in its upcoming Batman vs. Superman 10 poll, with more than 30 petitions springing up on Change.com to remove the actor. With vitriol oddly reminiscent of the backlash to Heath Ledger's casting as the Joker in 2008's The Dark Knight, fans took to the web to condemn everything from Affleck's star power to his acting chops. His acting skill is not even close to being believable as Bruce Wayne, and he won't do the role justice in one anti-Affleck petition, the true 3200 signatures. Oh, my gosh. You know, they, they, the thing is that they said the same thing about Michael Keaton, and he was like a and, comic actor before and Batman. On, an online petition on We the People section of the White House petition system, which allows <laughs> Americans to ask the Obama administration to take action on a range of important issues facing our country, requested to make it illegal for Ben Affleck to portray Batman or any superhero on film for the next 200 years. <laughs> But the White House blocked the petition and removed it from the site for being in violation of the terms of participation. Oh, that is just absolutely hysterical. Is it? And there's a there's a there's a screenshot here of it. We petitioned the Obama administration to colon to make it illegal for Ben Affleck to portray Batman in parentheses or any superhero in parentheses on film for the next two hundred years. That is brilliant. <laughs> That's and the thing is that, is that if it gets enough... Whoever did that deserves a Nobel Prize. If it gets enough signatures, it has to go... I know. They have to uh, address oh. it. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, that's so brilliant. All right, Wade, uh, we're going to start wrapping it up soon because you have so an interview, funny. Wade. Why I do. We have an interview. Let's internet. finish up the new films and then we'll, uh, we'll do wait. it. Forget this movie. Talk about films people care about. Why have we not talked about any okay. films people care about? Well, we're going to in a second. Uh, All right, Errors of the Human Body. Errors of the Human Body is, a, uh, is, is this... Uh, it's this... I didn't like this film, but I can kind of see how people do like this film. There's this doctor whose uh, son dies, and he winds up doing these um, kind of experiments on mutation and regeneration. Of course, it d nothing ever goes as planned, and it winds up being a whole bunch, bunch of crap. But the thing is that I'm surprised how character-centric it was. It really kind of it doesn't take its, it takes its character seriously and doesn't just throw him under the bus for all the blood and the gore. I kind of appreciated that. Ultimately, I don't think the film was all that successful, but I did respect that uh, it's not just like uh, The Human Centipede. It tries to be something a little bit better. So, uh, Errors of the Human Body uh, is right now from uh, IFC Midnight, available on DVD. Brilliant. And then from Magnolia on Blu-ray is a film that I'm shocked that I like because it's a vampire movie. It's Kiss of the Damned, which was written and directed by uh, Zan Cassavetes, daughter of John Cassavetes, who I, uh, I met briefly some years ago when we were on uh, uh, tandem juries at the AFI Fest. And uh, she had a documentary in competition then as well. Super talented uh, lady, really cool. And I uh, love her first name because her first name is my daughter's middle name. So anyway, well, it's, it's short for Alexandra in this case. But uh, the, uh, this is, it, it's essentially kind of a, 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 a love triangle, two vampire sisters and then a human guy who happens to be a screenwriter. Uh, but it ju the whole thing is, again, so allegorical that it's, uh, it really, it's really not about vampires. It's much more about, uh, you know, uh, gender roles and uh, all kinds of societal issues. And she does a great job with it. Really cool commentary. And uh, a few interesting little uh, little uh, featurette interview things on it as well. A very very nice transfer. Lots of really very effective uh, work with the darks and the uh, and the shadows on the uh, on the Blu-ray. Now wait, if you if you want to get a Blu-ray, yep, that is pretty much a documentary of our childhood. What Zan Cassavetti's film must you rent? Go. Uh, Z oh, Channel. Oh, the Z Channel. That yes. Well, that was the documentary that was in competition at AFI Fest. And, and actually, I was in Cannes yeah. the year that yeah. that uh, screened, and I and Zan was there. It's a great film. Along with uh, Tarantino, was with yeah. her as her guest, and yeah. it's a terrific, it's terrific great. documentary uh, that you guys, if you don't live in California, don't know if you'll get as much out of it. But I still think it's a great documentary. All right, Mark, uh, I have in my hands uh, from the director of Romeo Plus Juliet and Moulin Rouge, The Great Gatsby. Uh, you know, wait, I like this movie. <sighs> Look, I got in my hands here the Blu-ray DVD Ultraviolet Combo Disc and the Blu-ray 3D Blu-ray DVD Ultraviolet Combo Disc. Uh, I think the 3D in this movie is unbelievably annoying. Yeah, I saw that. it in 3D. Terrible. Uh, on Blu-ray, the Blu-ray 3D is headache-inducing. It is a freaking a headache-inducing. Uh, it's just it's so bright and the dimensionality just jumps back and forth and everything moves and cuts so quickly. It's just a nightmare. The, the regular Blu-ray, you can tell you're kind of missing something, that they designed so much of it to be very dimensional. 
It's not headache inducing, but yet it winds up being a little bit more lackluster as a result because it's clear that the visuals were not so quite designed to be 2D. Uh, but that being said, this movie is just, uh, it drove me nuts. Tell me what you liked about it. Better than, you, better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Here's the thing. If, if there are very few, The Great Gatsby lends itself to Baz Luhrmann's gifts, let's say. Because it is about this hedonistic time. And everyone's, this guy just throws nothing but lavish parties. And who's going to throw a lavish party like Baz Luhrmann? Yeah, like two-thirds of the movie is party. It's, right. just, it's just. But it's, the question is, can he... Can Lerman sell the other side of it, which is when you realize who Gatsby is? Not as well. No. But still, I, it, I, I will say this. It is better than the horrible uh, Robert Redford one. Neither, that one sucked. Ne- neither one of them really works for and me. And by the way, DiCaprio, good. Very good. You know why? Yeah. Nowadays, very few actors have the mystique to be the great Gatsby. Then what accent was he using? Because it was kind All of like... Of <laughs> Because it, it was like a little bit Bostonian, kind of mid-Atlantic, southern, half-British, Welsh. What the... I, I don't know what that was. I liked him. All right, old I'm sport. I'm just saying, I'm just... All I, right, old sport. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I'll say this too about that. If, if, if DiCaprio, not his fault. No. If DiCaprio said the words, words old sport one more time in that yeah. script, I was going to start uh, throwing things at the screen. Yeah, okay. But um, put, put it this way. It is the best version of F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel ever made. However, the bar is very low. Yeah, that's So that for being sure. said, I still Way have low. to say that despite its, uh, uh, despite its problems, I liked it. All right. Well, now we have covered all the new movies. We've got a few more things that we're going to knock out after the interview. But here, without further ado, I want you to listen to uh, my chat, my brief chat, with uh, Scott McGeehy and David Siegel, the directors of What Maisie Knew and the amazing films Suture and The Deep End. If you haven't seen them, you need to. These guys are great. They have still not hit their stride, in my opinion, but uh, this was a wonderful chat. Here we go. Scott McGee and David Siegel. Before we get going, let me uh, have you each speak and introduce yourself so that our listeners can uh, hopefully differentiate your voices in the interview. Uh, Scott, David, go ahead. Well, this is David Siegel, and I say more intelligent and artful things than Scott McGee. And this is Scott McGee, and, and I beg to differ. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I have been such a huge fan of, of both of you guys for the longest time. Um, all the way back to Suture, which uh, was just such a revelation at the time that I saw it. It just came out at the right time as far as independent film was concerned. And this is such an interesting trajectory for your, for your careers to have gone to, to this point, a contemporary adaptation of a Henry James novel. You always surprise people. Could you just really quickly tell us how, how do you take a Henry James novel and contemporize it and come up with a film that feels as though it's completely contemporary? Well, first, thank you so much for the kind words about our trajectory. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Wade. I I mean, we didn't write this, so, you know, we, we, the script was shown to us, you know, and, you know, frankly, when it was told to us before we read it, you know, a a child custody battle, basically, um, we thought, you know, oh, this, you know, this is going to be rough. It's going to be modeled in some way, one way or another. But the script was kind of light on its feet. It had been written quite a number of years before we saw it, so there was some script work that we did, did, and and there was, there was a little bit of bringing it into, you know, 2012. But, um, you know, we were really struck with the the idea of trying to, you know, from a kind of formal filmmaking, you know, sort of a standpoint, trying to tell a story, you know from a child's point of view, from a six-year-old's point of view, because it, you know, it forces you to reconsider all the most basic aspects of making movies, you know, where a camera is, you know, what comes in and out of frame, what characters hear, what they don't hear, how sound and music and everything else works in relation to subjectivity, but distilled down to the subjectivity of, you know, one character who happens to be three and a half feet tall. Was there ever a point... And obviously, you said you know this had been around for a while before you guys came on board. Uh, was there ever a point at which anyone said um, maybe we should do this as a period film? Maybe it works better in the original context because that seems to be the bravest thing. Everyone I know who's seen this can't believe that it's based on the Henry James novel. It's like how would that ever work in a Henry James context? You know, we've all seen the Merchant Ivory films, the Bostonians, and so forth, and everyone sort of knows. 
Henry James's sensibilities, and this just feels so immediate, so uh, so of the moment. Um, it, it's sort of hard to bridge that gap in a lot of people's minds. I mean, did you re- did you go back to the original novel for for any reason? You know, we did go back to the original novel just to to read it. You know, and I and you know we were open to what we might find when we when we did that. But I don't think there was anything in the original novel that that we thought was missing from the screenplay we had read in terms of like the story that we saw making a good movie. The the screenwriters did a really good job, I think, of, of figuring out what pieces of the James, um, to kind of include in their take on it. Um, we, we were, we were both really surprised going back to the James though, at just how modern the novel is. You know, it, it, it's, you know, it, it's a novel about a custody battle, and you know, and said in 1897 or whenever it was, it was written, and I mean, just that alone surprised us, I think. But then, you know, the the, you know, the the, the way that parents are selfish, and and the way they use their daughter in their own kind of battle with each other, and the you know kind of sexual escapades they get into, all of that was really, um, you know surprising to find in the source material. I mean, we had, we had heard that he he wrote the book, you know, the book is more more darkly satiric than the movie. And we had heard that the book was inspired by hearing about a custody, a joint custody situation, which he found absurd, you know, because it was so uncommon and it seemed, right. you know, to his mind, like, you know, well, how could that be, you know, in the be- in the best interest of the child? But, you know, the, the emotional kind of, push and pull that it that that kind of situation exerts on a kid yeah. it's just it's not so different the obvious question is you know uh, if you're making a movie on this subject matter that's contemporary there are some obvious comparisons everyone's going to say oh it's it's like Kramer versus Kramer which is a really tough comparison or they may say oh it reminds me of irreconcilable differences which it was you know a kind of a shameless maudlin vehicle for a very young Drew Barrymore coming off of the success of E.T. Were either of those things in the back of your minds that, that we need to make sure we're our own thing, we, did, we distance ourselves from those, or were you never really concerned that it would have a character of its own? You know, we, we didn't really, yeah, of course we were aware of the possibility of comparison that way, but we didn't, we weren't really so worried about it because it was such a different approach. The whole conceit of the film of this particular movie was so different. This idea of, you know, what Maisie knew, you know, everything that happens happens in front of her, you know, that that you really are trying to isolate the point of view. And it just seemed like it was a I mean we we had we gained confidence I think just thinking, well, it really has its own voice. You you led me right to my next question, which is um, you have some great actors here: Julianne Moore, Steve Coogan, Alexander Skarsgård. You need to put a child in the midst of that who can hold her own with that amazing cast. Um, Where on earth did Onata April come from, and what was it like directing her? Well, first off, isn't that the most insane thing that you've ever heard anyone thinking that they could do? <laughs> when we think about it retrospectively, it's, it's like, what did we, what, what were we doing? <laughs> but we did find her, and we sure feel lucky about it. You know, we A.V. Kaufman cast it. She's a great casting director, and had done work with kids before. She found Haley Joe Osment for the sixth wow. film. But we didn't find Onata until we were less than a month away from shooting, and we were getting pretty panicked about it, but Avi never sort of lost her confidence that we were going to find the right person. And she really is that. Like, that, that performance really is hers. You know, we didn't really have to overcut her work any more than we had to cut Julianne Moore, Coogan, or Alexander. It was really a, an amazing thing. And not only, you know, did we you know, have the kind of good fortune of that, but the, Onata was, she just wanted to be there so much, and she was enjoying herself so much, and she was such a natural, normal kid, you know, not really precocious, and, you know, that kind of generosity of spirit that kind of Maisie exhibits in the movie, you know, not to kind of have that in her own self. I mean, well, I am gushing about her, but we really do, you know, we really 
really loved working with her. You know, and and a question I know you've been asked countless times, but you are one of the uh, one of the handful of uh, in the history of film, the handful of successful directing teams that keeps making movies together who are not brothers. Uh, it's really a remarkable thing. Could you talk just for a second about what your approach is and and uh, how you're able to you know keep it fresh? Is 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 fighting not part of it? Is fighting part of it? Is it sometimes fighting? Is it never fighting? How does it work? We, we don't fight much, to be honest. We, we, I mean, we were friends before we started working together, and you know, I think that that's really the root of our of our collaboration. Is that you know, we like each other and respect each other, and you know, enjoy each other's company and trust each other. Um, but we, you know, neither of us went to film school, so we we didn't know better, kind of, than to do it together when we started out, and we we sort of developed a process of you know just you know, planning really carefully so we know what the other one's thinking all the time. You know, we, we've we sort of, you know... Well, we've, we've, we've written a lot together. You know, that's, like, I think the foundation of our creative work really comes from the writing that we've done. Um, but it it does require us to, like what Scott was saying before I just interrupted him, <laughs> 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 it does require that, we, um, that we're very thorough about the way we go about things um, so that people... You know, people, you know, understand that there's one voice. But after so many years, you can imagine, you know, it's a, you know, we we can sort of see each other thinking. We can kind of hear each other thinking in a way. Well, one of the things that has always impressed me in your work is that there's, uh, and, and some people might take this as an, as not a compliment, but what I love about your work is that there there is no identifiable style. That every movie has its own style, and you uh, you know you could not show this movie to someone who has seen Suture or who has seen The Deep End and know without someone telling you that it's the same team who's done all three films. It just There's nothing to suggest it. You, you adapt your style to the material in a way that I think is, is extremely mature and that we don't even see from veteran veteran directors these days. So, uh, bravo. I, I applaud you for what you've done. Thanks a lot, Wade. We really appreciate that. Uh, last question uh, on, on that uh, account. What do we have next to look forward to? Well, I wish we knew. <laughs> um, we're working on a couple of things that are, you know, like strangely and kind of coincidentally, the, the two projects we're working hardest on right now are both biopics, but um, which we've never done before. You know, like movies about actual historical people who, you know, are are living or have lived on Earth. <laughs> but um, you know, we've been at it long enough to know that what we're working on and what we'll do next might be two different things. Right. So. We'll, we'll see. Well, we will. We will all certainly look forward to it. So I, uh, I thank you both, and uh, our listeners have already been urged last week to uh, to go out and pick up the uh, the Blu-ray and the DVD. It's uh, it was one of our our top recommendations on last week's show. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks. Oh. Absolutely lovely couple of guys. Uh, they are. Great and couple I, of guys. I like their films a lot. They're awesome. I think they're kind of on their way. So uh, a few, uh, some listener mail stuff uh, before we wrap it all up here. Um, you know, we, uh, we've offered in the past to plug stuff, and Eric Altieri asked us to do a plug for, uh, for a movie. The, a low-budget feature he worked on a few years ago in the New Bedford Fairhaven, Massachusetts area. And uh, it's been around the festivals. It's now on Hulu. It's called Fairhaven. Fairhaven dated 2013. Uh, and uh, you know what immediately caught my attention was that it, uh, one of the actors in it, Chris Messina. And I love Chris Messina. Chris Messina's a great actor. Really underrated actor. So uh, even though we have not seen it, I have no problem plugging anything that helps our good friend Eric Altieri and uh, Chris Messina. That's Fairhaven. So uh, give a look at Fairhaven. And uh, if you're so inclined, hit us up and let us know at godsdigigods.com what you thought of Fairhaven. It's out there. So we're not talking about any of those, including uh, the know, one on the bottom, which you're going to give me. You, you know, uh, let's... You, you're not giving me that, are No, you? of course I'm not. But you know what? Let's, we, we, we've got a little bit of time here at the end, so let's talk just real quickly. Actually, wait, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. So when a publicist emails you after a screening and says, hey, I want to see what you thought of last night's uh, screening of X, yeah. do you email back or not? Uh, it depends. Okay. Depends on what? It just depends on my mood. It's what it depends so on. So I shouldn't feel obligated? No, don't feel obligated. 
Now wait, I want this movie, now you're giving it to me. No, you're not. Uh, we love to be or not to be. Ernst Lubitsch's amazing Jack Benny classic, now on Blu-ray from Criterion. Uh, we have a few classic films here that are just going to have to wait until next week, but uh, you, it'll be worth the wait. Uh, to be or not to be is just so unbelievably great. Now this was remade, incidentally, uh, was it in the... Mel Brooks! In the 80s. It was in the late 80s Mel Brooks did this? Anyway, and his remake is not bad. Well, it's not, it's not, it's like not this. this. It's nothing like this, but it's not bad. It was it was uh, certainly dignified and uh, paid homage to it. Uh, amazing film, absolutely hysterical. Maybe the best thing that uh, Jack Benny ever did on film. Uh, just classic, classic comedy and um, very black comedy too. I mean, it's a dark and uh, very prescient film in many respects. Made in 1942, the the way that it, uh, it it sort of factors into the U.S. role in World War II, which happened shortly after the film was released, is really interesting. And you get a, a bunch of great extras here. A couple of episodes from the Screen Guild Theater, which was this radio anthology series that uh, Jack Benny was a part of, uh, as well as a radio adaptation of the film. And um, uh, Pincus's Shoe Palace, this 1916 German silent short that was uh, done by uh, Ernest Lubitsch and a bunch of other stuff. It's just great. So uh, you want to definitely go check, pick that up. That's one of the great Criterion releases of the year, To Be or Not To Be, with Jack Benny and the fantastic Carol Lombard. Yep, love it. And uh, with that, Mark, um, uh, do we have any outros we want to do? You know what, uh, Alexander Berlika wanted you to say, uh, that's the truth, Ruth. Do you want, will you, oh, you're willing to do that? Well, we have a bunch. Okay. I don't know. Uh, now we have uh, Tav had given us it's in the can or maybe cut and print. Don't know if I want that one. I feel like that might be too on the nose. Although very film centric. You got to pick one. It is we're, film we're... legitimate. Okay. Yeah. I'll do one of Eric Altieri. Should I do one of Eric Altieri's? Go ahead. So uh, are we done? We're close. Finish this up. Okay. Here we go. You ready, folks? Ready. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. And until next time, don't go in the basement. Mm -hmm.